All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today as we pursue our study of the wisdom books. And today we cover the book of Job. Not Job, but Job. All right? And we know that it is not an easy subject uh, to digest and make something out of it. So bless us with your gift of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. and Help us then to truly understand what it is that you want us to get out of studying this book. So we thank you and we praise you in all things in Jesus' name. How many of you actually read all of this book of Job? Ah, I see a lot of hands that didn't. Huh? You did the homework. Okay, great. All right. Did you get lost in the detail? That's one of the unfortunate parts about this book. Uh, there's so much detail that you forget kind of what is the puzzle uh, problem in the first place. But hopefully we'll, we'll try to clear up a lot of that. Um, well, I'd like to give you a little bit of uh, background. Uh, the book of Job is the only book of the wisdom group, the seven books that we call the wisdom books, that is in story form. All of the others are either uh, prayers, psalms, songs, or instructions uh, in detail, minute detail in some cases. All right. So this is the only one that's in story form. Uh, it was originated back oh, probably in the 12th or 13th century BC and revised down through the ages uh, as Jewish tradition changed. As I said a little bit last week, uh, in the four different periods of Jewish history, the traditions, the understanding of the Jewish relationship with God changed drastically every 500 years or so. And the writings followed along in changing. For example, uh, as I already pointed out here, but I'll just repeat it, um, the whole name of Satan, the whole idea of Satan that we have today of who Satan is, was non-existent in the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. And the term itself doesn't show up in Jewish writings until the wisdom books and some of uh, the, the later prophets, but very few. Okay. Uh, so that is a way of showing that the story probably originated back in the 12th or 13th century BC. And it took on a lot of the original traditions that came out of Egypt and out of Mesopotamia during the Babylonian captivity or exile. Uh, 
and even changed afterwards. So what we have today is a more updated type of story that fits somewhat modern Judaism. But what is the point of the book? Well, it's a study of the reasoning of misfortune of any kind and retribution. In other words, what can I get out of it to equalize or make up for what I have had to endure or suffer uh, from some misfortune? And of course, Job is the epitome of misfortune, obviously. But let's revisit the subject of what is wisdom in the first place? What is the objective of these seven books in general? And that is to help us better understand our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Of course, back in these books, the name Jesus Christ would never appear because he didn't exist at that time of writing. And the whole idea of the Trinity was non-existent. So you will not see that. The idea of wisdom comes not from people who are smart or clever or crude. Or, um, there's another word I was going to use and it skipped my mind. Senior moment here. <clears throat> but nevertheless, wisdom is as we've said before, and let's go back to it because you have it in last week's handout. Wisdom is the ability to deal with life's experiences in a manner consistent with the will of God and the laws of nature, and when properly applied, leaves the acting person that is, the person who is acting in a wise position, leaves that acting person with a sense of peace and harmony. Right? Now, not everybody is going to agree with that because you can't please everybody and not everyone is going to see things in the same way. But that person who is a, a wise person will understand that and accept the problems that might arise. Okay. So keep this in mind, this definition. Wisdom is the ability to deal with life's experience, experiences in a manner consistent with the will of God and the laws of nature. The two go together, and we'll see some of that today. And when properly applied, leaves the acting person with a sense of peace and harmony. The other thing is, wisdom is always applied among two or more people, or applies to two or more people. Okay? It is not something that can be uh, worked out in a vacuum. And it, it, in many ways, is parallel or an aspect of God's love, agape love unconditional love, right? A person who is applying agape love 
to his or her actions is actually a wise person. So the two go very well together. Let's talk a little bit then about what is the traditional thinking of the time period in which this is written, that is pre-Christian era. All right. You remember, as I said last week, that the Jewish faith, Judaism, had no structure, really, for the first, oh, thousand years, almost. It wasn't until after the uh, exile from Egypt, when God gave Moses and the people the Ten Commandments, that they began to have some basis to understand God. Up till that time, there was very little contact between uh, the Jewish people and God. It started out, of course, with Abraham. But the time period between Abraham and Moses is, again, approximately 500 years. They spent... (laughs) three or four hundred years in Egypt. And during that time, uh, they were not uh, totally independent. They began as independent visitors to Egypt because of the famine in Israel. But over a period of time, they they became slaves, uh, not in the sense that we think of slaves, but slaves in the sense of indentured servants to the Egyptian people. And therefore, they picked up the idea of worshiping gods, plural, from the Egyptians. And it wasn't until Moses and the Ten Commandments scene that the people began to get an idea that there was only one God and it was the God of Israel, their God. So a little bit of possessivism started to creep in. They had the true God, and no one else did. Therefore, they were the chosen people. And that's how that phrase got started. But even then, They had the Ten Commandments. They were not stupid people. They were just inexperienced. And they tried to learn the meaning of these Ten Commandments as it applied to them in the particular uh, source or form of living that existed at that time over the next 500 years. Well, from the time of Moses and the coming back of the Jewish people into the promised land through the efforts of Joshua and Caleb, their time, their energies, their thoughts and expectations were all taken up by conquering those lands again, the promised land, so that they could live in it. 
they were not interested uh, in a serious way of developing a structure within Judaism. And so structure did not really exist. Their worship services, if they had any, we have no way of knowing, uh, developed little by little as peace began to settle down in that time period. <clears throat> and we had some very astute prophets uh, come along, Elijah and Elisha, and then Samuel, uh, and a number of experienced priests that were bringing the people along as best they could in what was their understanding. But the thing that prevailed in the back of the minds of all of this was they were the chosen people. And if you lived according to what they thought was a healthy, uh, wealthy, well-educated life, that God was blessing you. But if you were a if you were a, uh, a poor person, poverty of any level, if you were not healthy, if you were not well-educated, you were being blessed. Uh, I'm sorry, you were being cursed by God. Uh, and those two dynamics existed for centuries. The wealthy were being blessed by God, and that was a sign of God's favoritism on these people, and the poor uneducated, etc. Anyone in misfortune, that was because you were a sinner. And that's the essence behind the book of Job. Right. And unfortunately, <clears throat> that existed all the way up to the time of Christ. <clears throat> Christ tried to dispel the, um, this idea saying that just because a person uh, had some misfortune happen or illness happen to them, that doesn't mean that they were being cursed by God or that they were great sinners. And that was shown in a, in a couple places. <clears throat> uh, remember the apostles questioned Jesus about some people that were building a tower and it collapsed on them. And they asked whether or not these people were responsible for it because of their sins or was it their family, their parents' sin, which was another erroneous belief <laughs> that sins followed the family down for a thousand generations which is kind of odd, but that was one of their beliefs at the time. Oh, all right. And Jesus said, no, it was not either the people who were building this tower. <clears throat> There's a, a couple other incidents in the New Testament that tries to dispel that. But the Jewish people wouldn't let go of that traditional thinking. And in some ways, it still exists today. Uh, that 
the wealthy are being blessed by God and the poor. And that's why you don't see a lot of poor Jewish people. And bacon. <laughs> yes, Madge? Yes, yes, they're very exclusive. And that is one of the things that God didn't want. The whole idea of the Jewish family, the Jewish nation, was to be a central model community that would take the word of God and radiate it out to all the other nations. That never happened. Because of this idea of, as Raj just pointed out, this exclusivity. They withdrew and became a very closed community. And that was just the opposite. Now the problem with Christianity is we have a lot of people that seem to think the same way. That this is my religion, I'm going to keep it to myself and I'm not going to let anybody else interfere. And I'm not going to go and talk about it to anyone else either. That's wrong. Part of our responsibility as Christians is to evangelize. And that is not to go out, you know, and beat people over the head uh, to accept Christ. But when the opportunity arises, don't ignore it. That that's getting beyond our <coughs> scope of our thinking here. Uh, again, I wanted to give you this idea of the traditional thinking of the Jewish people at the time of this writing, because it's an important aspect or point of the book of Job. Job felt that because he was wealthy and well-educated and generous, and he even sacrificed uh, or offered sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case they may have sinned accidentally or something. In other words, the point is he went almost overboard uh, to show his faith uh, to God. Uh, and then the problem is that caused him to not be able to understand why he was suffering all this misfortune. If he did all of these good things, why was he stuck with all of this misfortune? That's the beginning of the book of Job. That's what the story is, or how it starts out. <clears throat> and that's his problem. That's the main problem of Job, that he doesn't understand. He's not complaining about the misfortune that he, that he is suffering. He is complaining because he doesn't understand. It doesn't line up with the traditional thinking of the time. Did you get that part of it? Did you see that when you were reading it? Uh, that is the main point of the book. <coughs> One of the other problems here is that his so-called friends, friends like those you really don't need, you know, but his so-called friends, can anyone pronounce those names? It's, it's really not necessary. Uh, we all know what the friends are trying to say in different ways. 
that Job must have been a great sinner in order to uh, suffer such loss of fortune. His family, his children, all of his possessions, etc. And uh, even his health, severe health problems. So the friends keep saying that in one form or another. But that isn't what we really need to know. All right? But I'll come back to that in a little while. <laughs> Let me uh, ask you a, a question. As we all know, there has been a great deal of misfortune in Texas and Florida and in other states uh, in the last few weeks. But if you think about it, the people in the Mideastern uh, countries of Europe and Asia have suffered the similar things for hundreds of years, but more importantly, the last 20 or 30 years. What is the major difference between the disasters uh, in Texas and Florida and those of the Mideast? Uh, that's got something to do with it, yeah. The idea, and, and I won't belabor the point, but the idea is that the Texas and Florida situations were caused by natural disasters, all right? The disasters within the Mideastern countries is caused by mankind being over greed, selfishness, cruelty, uh, power, etc. Major, major difference. We cannot say that the disasters caused by natural occurrences are evil. They're not punishment. That's right. And, you know, God is not deliberately inflicting those on those particular states. Those are natural, reoccurring disasters. All right. I think having, uh, in the case of Louisiana with Katrina, in building homes and buildings, uh, commercial buildings below sea level, was not the smartest thing to do. It certainly was was not a wise thing to do. But the major difference, of course, in the disasters here in our country versus those in the Mideast are because one is caused by the natural disasters and the other is caused by man's greed. Dick? There's one other subtle point though, and that's because of our neglect of the planet, the atmospheric problems we have created, these natural disasters are getting worse. Yeah, climate, climate change climate change and environmental protection. Yeah. That might be a message from God. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know either. But one of the things I wanted to do is give you this little diagram that I've used long for many years, as you can see the data at the bottom. But I've used this over and over. Creation, the large overall circle is, let's say, the concept of God's creation. And it is made up of three major components. 
moral law, actually the beginning. If you remember way back in the book of Genesis, where it starts out in the first day, what was the first thing that God created? Hmm? God created light, all right? But not in the sense of the sun and the moon, because that wasn't created until the third or fourth day. So if the sun and the moon weren't created until the third or fourth day, what created light in the first day? Or what was that? It was wisdom. When we get into the book of wisdom, I'll come back to that and we'll prove it and show you again. But moral law is the basis for the gift of wisdom. It is all, creation is also uh, made up by the major component of nature, created by God out of nothing, which includes man, animal and plant life, and all inanimate objects, all right, including you know, all the planets and the whatever's up there. The other component is intellect that makes us different than all that makes human nature different from all other of God's creation because it gives us the ability to reason, to communicate with God, with other mankind in a reasonable way and to love or withhold love, which is sin. That makes sense? All right. So you have three components there. Moral law, nature, and intellect. Now, when they are all operating as they should, what do you have? Peace and harmony. Yes. When they get out of sync to selfishness or pride or ignorance or greed or whatever, that is when problems begin. So, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I bet a number of people in Florida and Texas, as well as in the Mideast, has said, where is God when all this is happening? Why did it have to happen? Where is our God? Right. And so people will question, why doesn't God intervene and stop this? All right. But let's, let's take the hurricanes. If God stopped the hurricanes from happening or causing destruction, that would back up and set up a lot of other problems within nature. That is probably part of nature itself. God cannot just step in and take care of this little thing or that little thing without upsetting the whole ball of wax, so to speak. The same with moral law. Moral law was established at the time of creation. And each of us 
is endowed with some aspect of moral law, regardless of what faith we're, we belong to or claim to belong to, uh, what time we were born, what era, etc. We are all born with some idea of what is right and what is wrong. And we know when we have committed an, an error of some kind that is against God's laws of creation. And that is what sin is. And nature. If nature gets out of sync, as we often think the hurricanes are, and that is not true, uh, that upsets so many other things. Uh, for example, supposing we take an, uh, an incident and we've had so many uh, personal uh, terrorist uh, activities here, even in the United States, but so much more in Europe. But if God intervened and took that person who created that scene totally out of the picture, how many other things would God have interrupted or done you know, intervene in, in a way that would be contrary. What I'm saying is that free will has a major play here in all of this. If some individual decides that he's going to create a, a terrorist scene of some kind and go out and murder several people, if God took that person out, then he would be taking away his free will, which comes from this part of creation. And God's not going to do that. Even though it may solve a number of problems, but God lets those people have their opportunity of free will because you never know when they might change their way of thinking. And that is what is behind the church's uh, prohibition against capital punishment. If we as a nation stepped in and said, we are going to execute this person because he or she did such and such, then we are taking away from that person the possibility of that person repenting and asking for forgiveness, not only from all of the people that he hurt, but from God himself. We are taking away that person's right. And so that is why the church is so against capital punishment. And the other practical thing is, it is so much more expensive for the present system to house those people who are on death row uh, because they never seem to get there um, than it is if they were just commuted, their sentence was commuted to life in prison and they were treated as any other prison. So my point here is there are a number of 
reasons why God does not step in and intervene. And they are logical reasons when you think about it. I know that it is easy to say, well, why didn't God do this or that? But we are acting like Job because our thinking is wrong. Yes. All right. And, and that's part of, of this point here, too, the relationship <coughs> and the interaction in this story between God and Satan. Obviously, <coughs> as some people believe that all the books in the Bible are historical events. Well, if you take just this one part of a book, how could that possibly be? Because who was there taking down dictation, which what God and Satan said to each other, you know, not once, but three times. Uh, <clears throat> that's right. There is interaction. The whole thing is that mankind is caught sort of in the middle as a pawn between God and, and Satan. That the battle between good and bad is a cosmic battle created by the angels that rebelled centuries ago and God casting Lucifer, the head of those group of angels, into hell. All right? And that battle still rages because, remember, even those creations have free will. And that will remain until the end of time. Yes? Basically, God wants us to come to him because of our free will. Yes. Not something that he orchestrates. Right. And, and that's, I think, the simplest thing in this. Yes. Yes, in many ways that's right. <laughs> the devil is out there trying to get any and every one of us to turn against God. So, this whole story of Job could be our story just as well. Not with all the details and all the so-called friends. But nevertheless, God and we are tempted. Again, Doris, you've gone ahead of my, my lecture, but that's okay. That's all right. Uh, at least we're getting to the same point. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea, <coughs> the, the whole idea here is that <coughs> this battle that is continually going on between God and Satan, with mankind being uh, not the victim, but a pawn. God has created mankind out of love and expects us to return that love through everyone else. All right? God doesn't need uh, anything from us except returning the love which we then give through everyone else. But the devil is there trying to get back at God for being cast into hell forever and ever. Right. And so he is trying just the opposite. 
coming at us from various uh, ways and sources, uh, trying to get us to do wrong, to do sinful things, wrong things, even minor wrong things, just to get back at God. And God is saying, as Doris pointed out, come to me for I will relieve you. I will help you. Boy, do I need his help. <laughs> uh, we all need his help. Right? We should not be ashamed to admit it. Yes. challenged me and said, well, where was your God during this car accident? And I said, I knew he was with me. I never for a second thought he wasn't. But I never thought about it. And so I stopped and I thought about it. But you know where he was? With all the people that stopped? The people that put the coats under my head and the sleeping bag over me? as I'm laying on the sidewalk, and I thought about all the hurricane victims, and God was there with all the people rushing to help, and, you know, all the donations pouring in to help, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and God is there, people just have to look. Well, and that's, 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 that's a very good realistic example. If God had stepped in and stopped that from happening, you know, stop the person that created the problem, uh, <clears throat> those people would not have had an opportunity uh, to show their love right. for God through you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very important point. If everything went so well that we had no problems, then we wouldn't need God, would we? You know, I mean, if everything was just very peaceful and gentle and get boring, too, I think. <clears throat> but we wouldn't need God. And that would be heaven on earth. All right? God is love. We all need love. We all. love. So if you have love, God is there. Yeah, all right. But we would, we we would not have any need to approach God or beg God for help, or, as Julie pointed out, we would not have the urge to help others when there was a problem, because there would be no problems. See? So, that is very uh, an unrealistic thing. Uh, very good point. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, Lisa. Get, get our attention. Exactly. Yeah, that, hey, fellas, things are not going as, as they should be. You know, you are not showing love. Um, but the other side of that is wherever evil abounds, love abounds all the more. Okay? And the greater the evil in the world, the more love that will be shown and even in strange ways, look at all the uh, 
first responders to the earthquakes in the down in Mexico or or the hurricanes in Texas and Florida and the other states. Look at all of the people that poured out and those that you know poured money into helping out. So you have all of that love, just like Julie showed us, coming out of people that wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that had God stepped in and stopped all of that. So wherever sin abounds, love abounds even more. That's a, excuse me, that's a direct quote out of the New Testament. No. Yes. Yes. And, and you know the whole idea of of greed is creating or contributing, let's say, a major part of this environmental change that we're experiencing. You know, for example, you know the <coughs> the Chinese are building building, if you can call it that, islands out in the China Sea so that they can claim further territory because internationally uh, after three miles it's open water well if they have an island there you know the three miles gets pushed out further and further uh, okay. yeah so it is our relationship with God that really brings out the love that God has for mankind through us. In the Old Testament, though, don't you think, and in the, I think in the way the Jewish, the Jewish thought, that God was a vengeful God. Yes. So you have to be careful if you think that because it looks like everything's going downhill that suddenly we're having hurricanes, this, that, and the other. I'm not so sure about that. <coughs> and that smacks of the fact that is God punishing people? Is he being vengeful? Do we really believe that? No, not God isn't, but you know, the Satan is. Uh, but the point you, you've made here um, about fear of God prevailed throughout the Old Testament period for centuries and to some degree still is. Uh, I gave you uh, in your handout for today an article out of the Wall Street Journal from last Saturday. Now, I, I'm not going to get into this today. What I would like you to do this coming week is to read this article and we'll discuss it. You see, uh, the Jewish High Holy Days begin this evening and go for 10 days. And this gives you a little bit of background on what those are. And please don't mispronounce the name of the celebration for this evening. It is not Rosh Hashanah. The correct pronunciation is Rosh Hashanah. It's two words. Most people run it all together and say Rosh Hashanah, but that is not correct, a correct pronunciation. It's Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but look at them now. The lows, 
little paragraphs or, or portions uh, that I've underlined are the ones I'd like to discuss next week. But we'll discuss all of it uh, as you wish. All right. But I thought it was an interesting article. It gives you a little bit of background on the Jewish High Holy Days, uh, which ends 10 days from today with Yom Kippur, the highest of the holy days of the Jewish year. It is a lot like our uh, Good Friday. Now, our Good Friday uh, is celebrated by the Jewish people uh, with a Seder service, which is a joyous occasion, just the opposite. But it celebrates a totally different thing. It celebrates the escape of the people from Egypt. All right. Hashanah is a sad period of time, a period of penance and fasting and so forth. All right. But if they only do it once a year, how sincere is it? That is a question uh, I'd like to bring up next week. Let's let's get back on this idea of the fear of God prevailed over and over and over uh, for virtually 2,000 years in Judaism. And their relationship to God changed a great deal based on their experience with their neighboring countries or their conquerors, such as the Egyptians in the beginning. That is the only experience that they had of another uh, nation having any form of religion. And of course, the Egyptian faith at the time of Moses and the people, uh, the Jewish people in Egypt was polytheistic. They had a lot of gods. And each one of the gods, with a small g, had some major uh, effect on humanity. All right. Um, and so when the Jewish people escaped from Egypt or were released, whatever, um, and received the Ten Commandments, they were confused. And when Moses went up and down the mountain two or three times, the poor guy needed an escalator, um, the people got concerned because there was always smoke and lightning and fire and all kinds of uh, horns blowing. And, you know, and at one point in time, when Moses went up there and spent quite a bit of time and finally came down with the, the Ten Commandments, they said, we'll do anything you say, anything that God says through you, but boy, we don't want to deal with him directly. You know, of course, I'm using my own words for that, but nevertheless, if you get into the book of Exodus, uh, you'll see that. Um, the idea or the attitude that came out of that fear was that God was a vengeful God, not a loving God. The whole idea of love just didn't enter into their minds. And that affected a lot of their relationships with others because they were 
always protecting themselves. And if that bumped up against their relationship with someone else, so be it. They weren't that concerned. Love of other people outside of immediate family was almost unheard of. And prayer. There was no concept of an individual praying and having any personal relationship with God. That didn't develop until much later. And to some degree, still doesn't have the same understanding that we have of our relationship with God. And that came about through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that really promoted the whole idea of God's love for all of mankind is at the bottom of all that has happened throughout history. And it is only when we see that and try to imitate that that we truly have peace in our life. Excuse me. It's interesting when you get to read the last part of this book of Job. You see that Job finally gets his day in court, so to speak, in front of God. And he's probably angry and inquisitive and scared to death uh, because fear, of course, of God uh, is there. And he's not asking for his family back or his possessions back. He's asking for justice. And that is the thing that he has wanted most. Retribution or justice for the loss. And the ability to understand why he lost all of his possessions. See, he never knew about the challenge that Satan made with God, using him as the focal point. That was never divulged to uh, Job. And so you can't blame him in a way for questioning. Did I ever tell you, uh, this is a side little story, but uh, about the natives in the island of Kauai, in Hawaii, we're going to rename this big canyon that they have there. And so they decided this goes back, you know, in prehistoric times. This goes back quite a ways. And so they were saying, we got to have a sacrifice. So they decided they're going to have, they heard about the white man coming. And they decided, well, they're going to take one of these white men and sacrifice him. So this poor little Italian guy is part of the Columbus's organization, and he's going to explore the island of Kauai. And so these natives see him, and they keep watching. And finally, they're going to use this Italian, and they'll say, they made an agreement. Whatever this Italian says, 
we are going to name this canyon. So they grab the Italian and they start to throw him over. And the Italian says, why you mia? I just, I just had to do that. A little, a little relief once in a while doesn't hurt. Okay. Hmm? It's not historically accurate. What do you mean it's not historically accurate? Columbus had nothing to do with Hawaii. Oh, okay. Well, all right. That's, I, the, that's the name of the canyon, right? Yeah. I assume, yeah, that's right, Justin. I assume that you all know that, but that is the name of the canyon. Yeah, Wyoming. Yeah. Uh, spelled a little differently than, you know. But nevertheless, all right. Okay. Let's get back back to Job. When Job finally encounters God, God does not give him a direct answer. But God points out, just as this does in a way, a little differently, but nevertheless, where were you, Job, when I did this, thus, and so? far as creating the world. Where were you, Job, when such and such and such happened? In other words, Job was made to believe that God is a loving mystery and that we will never know all about him or his reasons behind them because he is the creator of all mankind and has an intelligence that is perfect beyond our understanding. And there are reasons why things happen that we will never understand. And we are all kind of in that same boat, that we have no right to question God in a demanding way. Now, set that aside for a moment. There is no problem, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I'm going through this trial. Is there a reason for it? Is there something you are trying to tell me? Well, that kind of questioning is fine. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, it is even recommended that perhaps there is something that God is trying to tell you. Or is your thinking wrong? And that is the problem with Job. He never questions his own understanding of who God is. You know, God is up there and perfect and got all this power and so forth. Why is he affecting me? You know, why is Wyomia, you know. Uh, and he is trying to understand, but it is only after God points out that he is really a mystery and far beyond our understanding and that we have to accept him in a loving way, that love will always predominate even though we may not see it that way. 
Anybody have a problem with that? But have you used that reasoning? See, that is the wisdom that is supposed to come out of these books. We are not necessarily supposed to imitate Job in any way, God forbid. What we are supposed to see is what finally came out of God's response to Job's challenge. I, as God, am above all mankind. I don't need to answer your questions. But I give you all of this as a way of showing my love. And that is essentially what God is telling Job here. That we need to rethink sometimes when we're going through a lot of trial and troubles or suffering in whatever form. What is God trying to tell us? And how can we see his point of view? And if we can't, then we have to just, as my mother would say, just offer it up, you know. Because <laughs> we kids never like that. We always wanted sympathy. <clears throat> but you do, as adults, we have to go beyond that uh, and offer it to God. Right now I'm going through a little bit of a health problem here. And uh, it's the same thing. I cannot question God, you know, why is me after I'm doing all of this for you? No, that would be wrong. That would be wrong. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with me asking God, why am I going through this, if you wish to tell me. If not, I will accept it and move on. And that is what we really have to do. That's the whole essence of this story. And I think that as a basis for prayer, there's a lot of food in this story uh, that we can use and help us to understand <coughs> our place in life uh, relative to our relationship with God. Uh, are we doing what God wants us to do. Because in the end, <clears throat> when we die, you know, God will be the one that we answer to. Not the devil, but we might be cast out of heaven uh, because we didn't see you know, that God was always the final answer. And that is why we have to rethink our thinking uh, when it comes to problems. Uh, I look at it, if something goes wrong, uh, like, you know, feel sorry for yourself, which I do a lot, <laughs> well, it's my time to share the cause. That's right. That's right. Yes. That, that's a good point there, Madge. Uh, there are a number of people who have long-term problems of all different kinds. There's no point in <coughs> trying to enumerate them. 
Um, and if they do not understand, then that is a way of offering it to God as carrying your cross. Very good point. And I think a lot of people reject that. In today's society, uh, people don't want to bother with problems. Uh, they don't want to uh, figure out what is the correct or proper thing to do. They want to feel good. They want to enjoy life. And whatever is pleasurable is good. Whatever is not, you know, is bad. Yeah. And our way of life today, I think, is going further and further away from God. Uh, there was a sad, sad story on the news last night, and I only listened to well, I wasn't listening to it. It just was on, and I was doing something else at the same time. But apparently it was some entertainer who has become very uh, popular, <coughs> famous, and very wealthy, uh, was exposing herself on Facebook or one of those services. And her mother was... Uh, in the poorhouse. And there was no relationship because the mother disagreed with the lifestyle and the actions of her daughter. <clears throat> uh, I thought it was a very, very uh, sad case. Um, and I didn't hear all of it, so I have no way to, to really comment. But what little I heard, it was extremely sad about people who are looking not only <coughs> <clears throat> and only the, the the pleasure and the enjoyment uh, that they can get out of life and act with everything else, including family. And uh, when their day in court comes before God, uh, you, you wonder what will be the outcome for them. And we will all have that day in court at some point in time. Uh, and we have to look at life that way. As we get older, uh, <clears throat> we know that that day in court is going to come sooner than later. And it's something that we should not dwell on to a morbid point of view, but something that we should be thinking about occasionally, uh, particularly when we are at prayer. Lord, is my lifestyle in line with your will for me and help me to know where to make changes if I if they are needed. It seems to me that um, this story of Job 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 is a parable. Like it's a story that God uh, that Jesus was telling the people he's telling us It's a suffering, yes, but there is something else behind that that uh, will help you increase your relationship with, with God. That's right. It is. Yeah. Uh, Gene's comment here is that the book of Job is very much like the parables that Jesus used to make a point. 
and educate in small doses. The story form seemed to disappear uh, in later Jewish life as writing uh, and written materials became more available. But you see, you got to remember that most of those people could not read. And therefore, uh, the book of Job was only known to those very few people who could read or who would take it and pass it on to others. And it was originated in verbal form. And that's why it changed over the years to suit the uh, traditional thinking at that time. And it wasn't until about the 3rd century B.C. that evil was given the, the name Satan. Is there any questions? Yes, Dick? Just a little question. In several places, the uh, book uses Sheol. Sheol. And I thought that was hell, and then I looked it up and it says the grave. Well, that's right. It's it's Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It is the Jewish term to cover a lot of things that they didn't understand. You remember, they had no clear understanding of the life after death. But they felt, in some ways, that not everybody went either up there or down there. So where did they go? It was Sheol. It was something like our limbo, you know, which the church refuses to acknowledge. Because those people who died in the good graces of God before Christ's passion, death, and resurrection did not go to hell, but they did not go to heaven either. The gates of heaven were closed. So they went to a place similar to Limbo, and the Jewish people called it Sheol. Now, next week, we will be taking up two books because they're very short. The book of Koheleth. The the book of Koheleth. All right. Yeah. I was going to ask you, how do you pronounce it? Yeah. Well, that, that too. Yes. Uh, the book is called Koheleth, all right? Even though it is a Q and an O, most in most English words, Q is um, next to U, Q-U. In this case, this is a Hebrew word translated almost directly into English. Koheleth is from the Hebrew, Remember, these books were popularized in the Greek form, not the Hebrew form, even though uh, Job was originally written in Hebrew, it did not become real popular and get into written form until the Greek form came along. And the Greek title for this is Ecclesiastes. So 
if you if you use either one, it's meaning the same story. It's not really a story, okay? Um, so Kohelet or Ecclesiastes is the same thing. Now, when we get a few weeks later, when we get into the book of Sirach, Sirach is the Hebrew word, Ecclesiasticus, is the Greek word. The meaning is a little different there because Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus are in reference to a preacher in the assembly or a preacher's book in the assembly. And Sirach is more on the book form than Koheleth is. All right. But Koheleth is an essay on the meaning of life. All right. The whole idea of what is life and why should we strive to be good? Why should we strive really for anything? The whole idea is, why don't we just accept life as it is and forget about the rest because we're all going to end up in the same place? Well, of course, that's not true. But the people at the time that it was written in around the 3rd century B.C. had no understanding of life after death. They had no understanding of God's love in the same way that the Christian uh, religion brought in, uh, Christ brought in, rather. So you have a totally different uh, you have a totally different type of story here. And again, it's not story, but it's it's some very beautiful language. Uh, it's a beautiful essay on this individual's thinking, but a lot of it is negative. And that is what we are supposed to see in it and then hopefully turn around in our minds and our thinking as what it should be. So don't get overly wound up in thinking that this is what we are promoting because this is not the case. The wisdom for this particular book, Kohelet, is to see what is wrong with his thinking, the writer's thinking, and what it should be. So that's something that I would like you to keep in mind. The other book that we will also be discussing next week is the Song of Songs. Some people in some books or Bibles, it might be called the Songs of Solomon. In others, it might be called Canticle of Canticles, which is the Latin for Song of Songs. All right. Nevertheless, it is the same kind of essay. Most of it is written in poetry form, not the rhyme and the reason, you know, the night before Christmas, all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Yeah, no, no. It doesn't have that kind 
of poetic rhythm. And even if it did, um, it was lost in translation, as they say. But sometimes in all the rest of these books, you have to reword what is there to get the proper meaning. So if you stumble across a phrase or a paragraph that you just can't figure out, take the same words and just rearrange them a little bit. Uh, the other thing that you've got to be careful of is personal pronouns. Remember, in many foreign languages, the personal pronouns, I, you, he, she, it, that kind of thing, uh, is included in the verb. And when translated back, you get more of a generic word. And the word he or him might appear three different times in the same sentence or the same paragraph. It might be three different people. So you've got to be a little careful there. And that's true whenever you are reading any English translation of, from the Old Testament. Also, the Song of Songs <clears throat> was originally written as wedding songs. And therefore, you might think that the uh, wording is a little bit uh, suggestive. I'll tell you a little story. Several years ago, my niece got married and asked me if I would do a reading at the wedding ceremony. So I said, sure. Uh, and it was in the church where I went to elementary school, one of these really elaborate churches <clears throat> built on the style of a small European cathedral, where the speaker's platform was elevated up you know, halfway up the wall. And uh, that was, you know, traditional in the old world churches because there was no microphones. All right. So I said, fine. Uh, what do you want me to read? And she said, well, I want you to read a portion of uh, the book from Song of Songs. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So I didn't say any more to her, but I read it off and I thought, oh, no, I can't, I can't read this and keep a straight face. So, uh, of course, I, I knew the, the priest there, the, and uh, I went into him and I said, look, uh, I forget which one it was, the name doesn't make any difference. I said, uh, unless you or I explain where this is coming from, it's going to look raunchy. <laughs> and it looks a little too much uh, in, in a wedding ceremony. You know, really suggestive. So I said, I'll, you want me to make a little explanation? He said, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I said, okay. Well, between that point in time, there was a change made with a different priest doing the ceremony because he was a relative. 
and the first one didn't tell the second one what about our conversation. So there was no explanation. And I wasn't going to get up there and you know, do anything about it. So can you imagine me getting up there on this platform and saying, Hark, my lover is behind the lattice. <laughs> no, no, no. I did it, but I would, it took everything I could do to keep from laughing. Anyways, but enjoy the Song of Songs. It is beautifully written, but you almost never see or hear that read in church <laughs> for obvious reasons, okay? But enjoy it. Any questions? Yes? I just have one comment. It, might, it keeps coming back to mind when Julie told us about her, her accident. Um, and she said, it never occurred to me that God wasn't with me. And I thought, that's what God really wants from all of us, to be taken for granted that he's always going to be there. Yes. That's the best taking for granted that we can do. That's when your relationship really is gelling. It's when you realize Christ is with you under all circumstances. And all you need to do is call on him. Yes, good point. Thank you. Yes. He got all of, oh, well, that's a good point, Justin. I forgot to mention that. Job was restored. And it's interesting, uh, you know, he had seven sons and three daughters. Uh, was he old enough to survive and have seven sons and three daughters again? You know, uh, I doubt it. But nevertheless, he did get a lot of his possessions and his health and wealth back. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, it's a story. Right. You know, it's a story. It, it just means that, yes, as Joe pointed out, anything can happen. Yes. Right.